Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here today with Sean Slade, the legendary Sean Slade, music producer and founder of Fort Apache, uh, the legendary Fort Apache, a place that when I moved to uh, the uh, greater Boston area in 1985, I thought of as a Shangri-La of sorts. I just, I had heard uh, all these records coming out. There was a great burgeoning local music scene in Boston, and Fort Apache was ground zero. I thought the walls were were paved with velvet, um, but I've come to find out otherwise. So uh, tell me the story of uh, how Fort Apache came to be. Well, I will, but uh, I will tell you that the walls were just bare sheetrock. <laughs> which we deliberately didn't paint because either, I don't know, we didn't paint them either because we were too lazy or didn't want to spend the money, but we found in the first uh, handful of sessions that the bands would come in and graffiti them. And that that was no, no end of source of amusement for everybody involved. Some of it was somewhat obscene, but uh, but that was part of the, the thing. Um, the, whole, the whole vibe we were trying to get with the way Fort Apache uh, looked was to make it look more like a rehearsal space than a studio because studios at that time were very antiseptic looking and they kind of looked like dentist's office and a lot of times bands would walk into these places and there were all these rules about what you couldn't do you couldn't smoke you couldn't drink beer well we actually encouraged people to smoke and drink beer uh, you could graffiti on the walls you could play your guitar as loud as you wanted I can't tell you how many people said man you, you're not telling me to turn down every other engineer I'm guessing this to was turn Jay Maskis yes it's Jay Maskis <laughs> it was and you see, one of the things that, that I think distinguished us from other studios, one, that, that we had this pure rock and roll kind of vibe, but none of us had gone to engineering school. None of us were trained engineers. We had taught ourselves. Paul Coldery and I, basically, well, Paul, Paul had more engineering knowledge initially than I did, but we taught ourselves how to make records by, we went down to New York and we bought a four-track, and we brought it back and we set up a little studio in, in our band house in Dorchester in the basement. And we had a four-track reel-to-reel, which at that point was the entry-level multi-track. Pro Tools hadn't been invented yet. We're talking about, this is 1982. It would take another 10 years for Pro Tools. This was pre-fax. Yes, absolutely <laughs> right. With the beepers. Um, and uh, we used the, um, the, the uh, we didn't have a console. We used the board from our live PA setup. But it was a nice-sounding um, little console, uh, good preamps. But it also had an onboard spring reverb which we used liberally and uh, we, we just got the biggest thrill out of making little records for track records in the basement and then we made our own records for our own band or not records this was uh, the, but demos the sex execs the sex execs that's right but then we also had uh, other bands come in to record um, that's how I uh, met Joe Harvard uh, one of the co-founders and that he um, wanted to record he had a band called The Bones and he came by we had mutual friends and he came by and he wanted to, or I suggested, hey, how about we record The Bones? And that might have been my first real production was producing The Bones. So that, uh, in the basement, and we made a whole album, which was then released on cassette <laughs> with Xerox artwork. Uh, those back in the 80s, the DIY uh, things. They actually had an exhibit recently at the Museum of Modern Art that was, that was all about the 80s. And most of this, the artwork that they had was that Xerox, mm-hmm. homemade Xerox Fanzine. collage, fanzines, uh, band posters for gigs. Um, it was it was a real kind of weird art subgenre back then. So we were part of that and the whole DIY. Every time anybody mentions Fort Apache, uh, they always talk about DIY, the do-it-yourself mm-hmm. thing, which is exactly what we did. We, we didn't really think about it that much. We just said, let's have a studio. 
And the name Fort Apache came because it was... It was in, a, well, let's say a rough part of town, uh, meaning it was in this weird... At this point, it's been somewhat... Now, currently, this the area is much, much more developed. But back then, it was this kind of no-man's land between... Uh, if you go on Mass Ave... Um, well, we're here at Berkeley, so if you go south, I think it is, um, you're heading toward uh, Dorchester. Mm-hmm. And once once you get out of Boston and before you get to Dorchester, it was just a bunch of meatpacking plants. And it was kind of this an industrial zone. And the building we were in had been, it was abandoned, and then some guy bought it and decided he was going to turn it into artist's lofts, which never really happened. He was... Very unambitious, this guy. But he rented us a space of a loft space that we then built the walls to then define what Fort Apache uh, became. And so the neighborhood was rough um, when bands would go downstairs and say, Oh, do they? T-? This would be at two in the morning. They go downstairs and they come back up and they say, Do they, do they tow cars around here? And we go, Oh shit, your car got stolen. <laughs> My car got stolen. Uh, it, have you ever had a, a, a you ever had that experience? I have had that experience in that neighborhood. Okay, right across from so the Villa Victoria. What, what, what was it like? What, tell me what. what. Well, you, uh, you know, I was very naive, and and I had my a bag in the back. I was moving away for the summer, and I came out, and there was no car. And yeah, that's exactly what happened to me. I come. It's two two in the morning again. I come down and I'm just staring at the empty parking space and I'm going, wait a second, I thought I parked my car here. As if you could conjure it back. Yeah, as if somehow the mental energy could bring a poof. Uh, it's an awful sinking feeling. Um, and uh, you mentioned the Victoria. Villa Victoria, yeah. Yeah, well, is that still there? Oh, yeah. The okay, is. that was our commissary. Okay. Yeah, we were only mm, maybe like two blocks away. Yeah. And sometimes we go over there and um, get uh, takeout uh, club sandwiches, which were particularly good. Um, but yeah, so you you actually then know that area well. Yeah, I live I live in that neighborhood now. It's it's a little different than it used to be. Yeah, all the meatpacking plants are gone. Yeah, all all of the <laughs> yeah all of the co- local color is gone. And all of the character is gone. But I do. I That's live, probably all for the best. Well, I live across the street from Thayer Street. Um, which oh. is where all the re- rehearsal spaces used to oh, be. Oh yeah, I, you know I saw the uh, uh, the contortions there at a, at a loft party, which were very memorable. Uh, but to get back to your question, uh, there was a specific moment when uh, Billy Conway, who's a friend of ours, a drummer of Morphine, mm-hmm. he had pulled up uh, with his small truck and he was unloading some drums and he unloaded enough bunch of drums, took them upstairs, and when he came back, somebody was about to steal his car. And they were just pulling out. And he was able to, like, kind of run up and, like, open the door and, like, grab the guy and, and basically hold him and say, what, what the fuck are you doing? And uh, the guy, like, guy, guy said, it's not my fault, and then, like, ran away. <laughs> and, uh, and he came back up, and he goes, man, I, I was within this, I was this close to having my car stolen. The guy was stealing it right in front of me. And Joe Harvard uh, said, it's like fucking Fort Apache out there. And I go, that's it. That's it. And what do you mean? No, that's the name. That's the name. And it's stuck. So it was more from Fort Apache, the Bronx, mm-hmm. than Fort Apache, John Ford. Uh, but it's stuck. And it was it was a cool name. It kind of described us, too. Somebody said that it was also described, like, um, you know, when kids play and they build a fort. Mm-hmm. 
That was kind of us, too. We were just kids playing. waiting for parents to come home? Yeah. Our house in Dorchester was like that. It was like, hey, hey, with the monkeys. It was like a a band house where no no authority figures. Yeah. And And that was... torque on the couch. Right. Yeah, where everybody, like, yeah, the the living room was a squalid mess, and uh, you're just having fun and doing whatever you feel like doing. And then, so, Fort Apache, I mean, it, it, it it didn't have a slow growth. It kind of... It kind of jumped into existence. I mean, well, that, that that might seem that way. It took us a full year. Okay. Um, we started in right around Christmas of 1985, and we took most of 1986 um, improving the place, getting to. It took us a year to figure out how to engineer at a professional level, but we did that. We had the luxury of being able to record our own bands. Um, uh, Paul and I were in a band called Men and Volts, mm-hmm. so I made an album with them. Um, Paul made an album with Morphine, uh, no, I'm sorry, um, Treat It Right, which was their first album, and that that was done to A Track, which was our first. That was our initial multi-track setup, was A Track. Uh, that was in that was in late 1986, and that actually got sold to RCA Records. That recording, A Track, it was that good, and so that I would say that track. that was that was our kind of get 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 it together period, and then in 1987 we knew what we were doing. And that was the year that Paul and I co-produced a Big Dipper, which then that was kind of an unexpected heavens, heavens, right? I love that album. That was uh, that was our first like really unexpected success. That was on um, an indie label that had had a, had a profile, and uh, it became a college radio hit. And so I think that 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 was that and and Treater Wright were the two things that put us on the map. And then of course there's the Pixies. Do tell. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm not the best person to ask, and this is one of those stories I'm kind of, I'm very hesitant to tell this story because when Gary Smith, who was our managing the mm-hmm. studio, was a big part of our success, um, he discovered them, literally, this is like old school show business, he saw them on Monday night at The Rap, uh, which is kind of like open mic. Yeah. Night. Was- yeah. And he was just, uh, he, he couldn't believe how great they were. And uh, he went backstage and said, hey, I've got a studio. You want to come and record? And, and they said yes. So he, um, he rented, he was very ambitious about the project. He kind of had a, a feeling uh, that something was going to happen with it. So he rented a 16-track for it. And he gave uh, me and Paul the demos. And I didn't hear it. I thought it was cool and everything, but it just wasn't my cup of tea. This conversation is over. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, I know. But that's what I said. I'm, I'm hesitant to tell this story because occasionally this happens. You yeah, know? it's not everyone's cup of tea. And it yeah. sounded. I mean, that, that's the thing is about that band at that time. And um, you know, I, I was uh, very fortunate to have sort of to have heard it so early, uh, the Purple Tape and everything. And yeah. and. Uh, it definitely sounded like it was from another planet. It didn't sound right. Which is its main appeal. And I, there was something about the, the demos that I just... I found somewhat off-putting, but then when I heard the Purple Tape, when that was finished, uh, I said, oh, I, I blew it. This is really good stuff. There was one song in particular called Down to the Well uh, off the Purple Tape that I thought was the best song on the Purple Tape, but it didn't show didn't up until, like, up. album five. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what happened then was then... Um, and it worked out... For it to everyone's benefit, I don't really regret it because um, it was a tough gig, and uh, and uh, Paul was a better candidate to do it uh, than I was at that time because he was a much better engineer, and uh, worked, so he worked with Gary, and mm-hmm. he was engineering, and Gary was producing, and uh, even if I was there, I don't know how I could have really contributed to it. So um, 
they worked solid over the course of a weekend. I don't think anybody got that much sleep. So there you go. And then when Gary then, Gary knew Ivo at 4AD and sent the purple tape uh, to Ivo. Ivo signed them immediately and then put out Come On Pilgrim with eight songs that he had chosen from the purple tape. So yeah, so that's that. That was what put us on the map uh, on a on a global rock scene mm-hmm. kind of way because it was astounding how out of nowhere the Pixies were then like that album comes out or EP or whatever you want to call it, um, and then they're on the cover of NME. Mm-hmm. They were much as most people know they were much bigger in in England and Europe than they were in the states. Right, and that 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 continued throughout their whole career, um, and the whole idea then that they could reform. 20 years later and then play stadium play. is another I, unlikely thing that no one could have ever predicted I'm gonna I'm actually gonna have a, a reunion of a band that never existed and just start playing stadium oh you can do that yeah you know I was I was driving down this was maybe two or three years ago I was driving down Com Ave uh, it was kind of a commute I had and over the course of a month uh, all, the marquee had all these bands from the 80s mm-hmm. and I said wait a second what this is like in 2010 I said, "What decade are we in?" It's a, we we did uh, a pod not too long ago, my brother Jeremy and I, um, about legacy acts because within a couple of weeks we had gone to see uh, the Breeders, um, uh, Built to Spill, Afghan Wigs. Uh, yeah, this was I saw Bob Mould. Uh, then two weeks later it was Jesus and Mary Chain, mm-hmm. and then. Um, just last week, Killing Joke played there. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> still alive. <laughs> well, I love the paradise. The when I first moved to Boston, uh, I did what everybody does when you move to Boston, which is get a shitty apartment on Com Ave. Mm-hmm. I guess I that's, a, one. that's a rite of passage. Twelve eighty-eight. Uh, what was eleven forty-nine? I think. Yeah, I um, <laughs> uh, but I was right at the uh, right around the curve. Okay, and when me and my high school buddies, who were going to be my roommates. Uh, and one college buddy um, came around that curve or were coming up Com Ave to go to our new uh, dump. Um, who should be playing there that night? It was August of 1978, but ACDC. Wow. And it was sold out, which pissed me off because I, I loved ACDC. Yeah, but that, that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of an indication of what was happening in Boston. So in any event, though, I saw the Paradise, I saw it was ACDC, and I said, oh, my God, I've really lucked out. Um, I walked to the par- I could walk to the Paradise, and I was there every night. I bet. I mean, almost literally. Yeah. Tickets were like seven dollars. If that, I would imagine, you know. And and they still had cabaret seating too, in the late. 70s. Oh really? Yeah. Did not know that. Yeah. It was. I remember the stage was in a different place, but yeah. yeah. No, they had tables all the way to the front. Oh, nice. So did so did CBGBs when I first went there in 1976. Really? They had uh, cabaret seating right in front of the stage. That that left. No, nobody had figured out this whole like get the tables out of there and let people go wild thing yet. No, it was still very much nightclubby in this mm-hmm. kind of lowbrow kind of way. Yeah, yeah. very uh, sort of uh, Copa Cabana. Yeah, kind yeah. Of. You sit, you sit there and you sip your drinks. And <laughs> Absolutely. It was, so, but I mean that. So that sort of. I mean the Pixies were sort of an outlier even in Boston. They weren't really part of. I mean, from what I gather, I wasn't there, but they were. They were sort of. Um, you know, there seemed to be more of a tight knit scene that was a lo- that came up locally. That um, that's absolutely true. And the the Pixies never had to like slog through the whole like becoming a, bo- a local band thing to become headliners mm-hmm. um, kind of process because they hit it so big so fast in England that they were in England and Europe. And so who Boston? Who cares? Mm-hmm. Whereas the the scene you mentioned too is um, I can I can take it back a little earlier in the. In the early 80s, when we were in the sex execs, 
we did pretty well, but we were never part of the Boston, the hip Boston rock scene. We were never considered a cool band. Uh, we never really played the Rat. To be uh, to be a cool band in the eighties, you had to play the Rat. That was you know Ground Zero, Rock yeah. Central, and that was the scene. We called it the Boston Five Hundred. The the five hundred people that determined what the Boston scene was, and. They didn't like us. They thought we were too show busy. And in a lot of ways, we were very show busy. But we did it. We were doing it ironically. But you know, sometimes people don't really catch, yeah. catch that. Um, also, our main, uh, what we mainly did, though, is we had an a agent manager who had basically a monopoly on college gigs. So rather than play the nightclub scene, we were always out at a college playing. And it was a wonderful time because the drinking age was 18. They, Reagan didn't change the drinking age until 1985. Colleges, if you can believe this, colleges had college pubs. I, I remember. You could, go, you could go drink beer, indulge in the mating ritual, and see a band, mm-hmm. which a lot of times was us. And we'd play three sets, which was also very different from a Boston uh, you know, aspiring album uh, band who would play an original set, and that would be it. So we had a certain professional musician bar band side, which I also think kind of alienated certain people, too. So. I, I did have the uh, great pleasure of playing your record on my high school radio station. Uh, glad that you're my ex. Was that? A- oh yeah, my ex. That was our hit. Yeah. <laughs> you can't you can't see me, but I'm you know doing the air quotes. Uh, it actually was. It got played in heavy rotation on BCN, which was kind of our consolation prize for being in the BCN Rumble and losing to Till Tuesday in the finals. You know, it, that's a reasonable. Yeah, I a- thought it was very gracious. Of BCN. We're here at Amy Mann's <laughs> alma mater at the moment. So. Oh, uh, well, you know what? I think she might have been. There, there are a lot of uh, famous um, Berkeleyites that went on to success but uh, dropped out at some point. Well, I don't think I know anybody who's graduated, frankly. I don't think gradua- graduation is, is a requirement. I think that if you come here and actually spend two years here, you're an alumni. Mm-hmm. I, I think that was John Mayer came for a couple of years and then, and then split. It, it's a whole host of people. And, and, and actually, I was just referencing it last night. I, uh, you know, I don't think people realize that ministry formed here as well. I uh, know. I had no idea. Yeah. That was, uh, they were, uh, neither of them were Boston, but they were formed in Boston and then left. Oh, you see, that explains now. I always wondered why they recorded at Synchro Sound. Because the Sex Execs were also recording at Synchro Sound. Mm-hmm. That's where we did my What was that? Uh, Synchro Sound was uh, owned by the Cars. Okay. And was that was, in Carlisle? No, uh, that was that's Blue Jay. Okay. Um, Synchro Sound was right on Newberry Street. Gotcha. And it was so much fun to go into the Cars studio. I mean, that was a real thrill. They were great. They were, they were great. And they, you know, it was like it was like them, Aerosmith, and Made You Proud mm-hmm. that a Boston band could go out and, you know, sell platinum and play the Enormo Domes and yeah. that kind of stuff. Uh, so, okay, that explains ministry. My favorite uh, Berkeley alumni is Psy, though. Oh, oh, Psy. Gangnam Style. Gangnam Style, yeah. It took me a minute. I thought I knew he was uh, uh, came to school in Boston. I actually thought it was BU. Uh, he was, And then he came over here for a semester. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Oh, wow, that's wild. And now he's living in palatial splendor someplace with his I hope so. millions of in YouTube pennies. Style. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so, I mean, again, like, so getting back to the, the late 80s, early 90s, I mean, you sort of, they, there was a moment in Boston, and it seemed to me like, um, you know, these regional scenes, um, you know, were sort of, it was a cyclical thing, but it started, you know, I mean, for me, underst- my understanding of it, uh, you know, sort of went Athens, Minneapolis, 
Um, Boston had its moment in the early 90s with the Lemonheads and Julianne. You know, that's a, that's a really good point because we were very aware, uh, back in the early 80s, we were very aware of the Athens scene. Uh, but also we were very aware of the Minneapolis scene because uh, Paul Coldery was from Minneapolis. Hmm. And my mother, uh, who, uh, you know, I grew up in Rockland County, just outside of uh, New York City. Hmm. And then she ended up moving around and she ended up uh, moving to Minneapolis for two or three years. So I, I was I was keen on Minneapolis too, and I was you know it was the replacements, but also a band called the Suburbs, which were really suburbs, good. Yeah, yeah and uh, and then the Twin Tone label. Mm-hmm. And so we, we Peter Jesperson was our one hundredth episode. So. Oh, okay, because um, we were kind of we kind of I wouldn't say we imitated that, but we were aware that you could do something like that. In other words, have a local studio uh, in a in a city based on whoever was playing around mm-hmm. at the time. So. You know, we had the suburbs records, we had the replacements records in the before we started the studio, so that was probably in the back of our minds. But the two bands that really, um, the Pixies, of course, but the two bands that helped Paul Coldery and I really break out were uh, Dinosaur Jr. and Buffalo Tom, because they also became they weren't as huge as uh, Dinosaur Jr. weren't as huge as the Pixies in England, but they were big. Mm. That song "Freak Scene," mm-hmm. which we recorded, that was um, that went to the top of the indie charts. So that, when we went over to, when we got a manager, when Paul Coldery and I got a manager, um, he said, well, you know, this, the kind of music you do is underground music, but it happens to be popular in England, so I'm going to send you over there. So Mike Lambeau, our manager, said he knew all the English record companies, so he set up appointments over there, and that's, that's where we met or made the Radiohead connection. Out of that. And that was, uh, I mean, it's sort of, yeah, it, I mean, in reading the history, it's sort of, you know, Boston, 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 England. And that, I mean, you know, I won't ask you to delve too deep into that, but what, what, how did you cross paths with? Well, if you would have asked me, we went to, we went to three or four a day, I'm sorry, three or four record companies a day we had appointments. And it was like a coin toss. You'd walk in and the guy would be friendly and you'd sit around talking about music or you'd walk in and the guy would be like, "What the fuck? who the fuck are you? What are you doing here? Why are you wasting my time? Typical show business crap. Uh, and if you would have asked me which label would be the least likely to have a gig for us, I would have said EMI because they were the big corporate label. But um, the A&R guy at EMI was friends with our manager and Paul and I had made a record after Apache with this Nashville band called Clockhammer. They were a three-piece uh, they had the loud, uh, the loud, soft dynamic too, mm-hmm. with the Pixies and big guitars, and we had made this uh, record for them cheaply and quickly because it was on our manager's label. He had a kind of a he had a label to sign bands, do quick albums, and then hopefully then sell them to the major label. So the guy's the guy's name was Nick Gatfield, and he had a copy of Clockhammer, and he said, "So did you guys do this?" And we said, "Yeah," and he goes, "It sounds great. You know, we have we got this. We just signed this band." that uh, they have three guitars and they're, they're having trouble sorting out their guitar sound. And I love the guitar sound that you guys got. And I said, yes, that's what we do. We get big, loud, ugly guitar sounds. To fit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And to be hugely loud and, and, and get them still in the mix. And the guy goes, well, that's kind of what we're looking for. And we just signed this band. They're called Radiohead. And, but two weeks before, they were called On a Friday, <laughs> which was their original name. Somebody, somebody wisely told them they had to change it. And the thing that, you know, when I tell this story... It, Nobody knew who they were. I mean, they were just out of college. They'd been a band they'd met in high school, or public school, as I said, over there. And, uh, yeah, they got signed because of the strength of their songs and Tom's voice. 
but they hadn't hardly even done any gigs. It was sort of like the Pixies in a way. Very much so. A band that kind of has this magic they form, put them in a studio with these with this incredible combination of elements, and you know, bam, something happens, and that's that's kind of, that's exactly what. Is happened. that how we refer to you and Paul now as an incredible uh, combination of elements? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we were a good team because uh, you know we each had individual strengths and weaknesses that then kind of uh, bounced each other off really nicely and we he he was an excellent engineer and I was more more the arranger kind of guy so it was it was a good it was a good collaboration bad cop worst cop well we would actually we would fool people all the time because we'd switch you never knew which which guy was going to be the bad cop or the good cop at any given moment that's good we that's could assume good, both roles it's yeah. a good talent and you guys met in college right yeah he uh, he um, we were all in the same class uh, at Yale in 1975. Um, Billy Conway from um, uh, Morphine and Treat It Right uh, lived in the dorm room right next to mine. Um, I don't know how they figured it out, but they put all the crazy freak musicians in the same dorm. It's called quarantine. I think, yeah. <laughs> you know, I never thought about it that way. They said, That's right. They, yeah, they wanted to keep us <laughs> corralled until um, we, so we do less damage. But... Um, but Paul wasn't, uh, he came, he came, I think he came to school a little late, and uh, they put him in, like, whatever dorm room was open, and he hated his roommates, and, uh, and he was talking with somebody and said, uh, you know, I hate my roommates, they're so square, and the guy said, well, there's this bunch of weird musicians over here across campus, you should go check them out. So he magically appeared one day, there he was. Just moved in. Yeah, yeah he just brought his bass up, and he goes, where, where are the guys, with the, where are the weirdos? And I said, oh, follow me. <laughs> Um, Take me to the sex execs. The, uh, Ted, who was a, the keyboard player in the in the sex execs, was on the first floor. Um, me and Conway were up on the fourth floor, but it, but it was the same entryway in the mm-hmm. in the where all the freshmen lived. So that was you know very uncanny that that happened. Yeah, that's a that is kind of uh, magical synergy. Yeah, and well, so thank you, mm. fancy college. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, New Haven gave us something good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so and so, but um, and then uh, like I said, this the scene sort of developed. Um, you know, the Pixies uh, were attributed to that scene, but didn't seem to really participate so much. But you had Buffalo Tom, which was, you know, I mean, those are great sounding records. We yeah. had Bill Janovitz on actually a couple months ago. Oh, great. Because I, I love Buffalo Tom and uh, great songs. And um, uh, Buffalo Tom were big in England, though, too. Mm-hmm. And they ended up signing to Beggar's Banquet. Same thing. And Jay signed to uh, Rough Trade. So they both signed to... British labels. British labels. And so... At one point, like, the Pixies were on the cover, but then Enemy uh, invented this whole thing of the Boston sound, the Boston scene, and they presented it to the English rock public as something wild and exotic, mm-hmm. which it really wasn't, but it was nice. It was, it was actually part two. I mean, if we can do a history lesson here, it was... was uh Round two of the Boston sound, the Boston scene. Uh, reading, we had Ryan Walsh on not too long ago with his Astral Weeks um, uh, history, a secret history. That's of Boston. a great book. I was great. so happy you have that. And um, they had the Boston sound, the Boston scene originally coming out of the Tea Party in 1968. So this was round two. Huh? Well, there was also this very short-lived. Um, it was called the Boss Boston sound, or the Boston. The yeah, I forget exactly how they hyped it. But it was all these uh, crazy psychedelic bands that were on MGM records. Yeah, this was uh, Ultimate Spinach and right, and uh, uh, some other some other crazy, all crazy psychedelic names, and it flopped miserably. Mm-hmm. No one was buying the Boston Sound, but in this particular instance, in England, they did. 
So it was a, but it was a. It, it was, was good music. It was really good music, and it, it is funny. To, I mean, the Throwing Muses were also on a. a yes. They were on four AD, right? Uh, they were on four AD, and then they got signed to Sire, just like uh, Jay ended up uh, mm-hmm. on Sire. That was another band I did not understand for the life of me. But thank you, Gary Smith, because he 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 was visionary that way. He 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 knew that the throwing muses were great, and he knew that the pixies were great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they. I mean, there's a similar, and that was you know it was sort of an inscrutable sound. It wasn't anything you'd heard before at right. that point. So you know it was, it was foreign territory. But so and then you know you get this, this sort of later wave of uh, some of the bands that were great that didn't pop necessarily uh, nationally or internationally, like the Volcano Sons and and Bullet La Volta. But you had uh, yeah, I did demos for the Bullet La Volta um, record before they went out there to work with Dave Jordan. Um, oh, I'm sorry, what was the fir- the first one you mentioned? Oh, uh, Volcano Sons. Sons. Oh God, yeah. Um, I owe a great debt to them because uh, they they really taught me a lot. Uh, I made a record with them, and I, I my engineering skills were adequate, <laughs> um, and we we had a good time making it. But uh, I was learning; they were learning. Um, me to do the next one too so I made three records with them um, yeah they were a great band but um, they were a little too indie underground they didn't have the melodic aspect mm-hmm. was, would be if you ask me why they didn't break through um, they didn't have that kind of hooky thing going and I think that's kind of the Boston sound is a um, it's a, yeah, it's power pop Power pop, but in a in a like you know the real kids that's power pop. They're all descendants of the Cars, essentially. Yeah, yeah, and the the power pop is like uh, I'm sorry, the Cars are power pop with a little Roxy music thrown in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, a little little weird, you know, little, European little Europe. Yeah, yeah, by yeah. way of Cleveland. Um, <laughs> but uh, and then the, then then you know it, it sort of followed on with the Lemonheads, uh, who became really huge. In, in right, right. Um, they the. They they did some stuff with us. They worked. A, they made their first record with Paul, first major label record uh, with Paul, and then um, which kind of set them up very nicely. And it was the second record where they went out to L.A. to do it. That that it was their big breakthrough. Mm-hmm. So people had their eyes on Boston, and and Fort Apache was you know going strong. You move from Roxbury to to Cambridge at some point. Right, and that was thanks to Joe Harvard. He he was he was the main businessman at the time. Gary was helping manage, but uh, it was Joe who had the money. Mm-hmm. And he had a vision of expanding, and um, he... Uh, it, it's a long story that I won't go into here, but... Um, oh, we love long stories. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll make it as succinct as possible. What happened was... You remember George Thorogood, right? Absolutely. Okay. So George Thorogood was signed to a rounder, and produced by this guy named John Nagy. And out of nowhere, um, George Thorogood got on the radio. And I remember hearing it on uh, WNEW and WPLJ mm-hmm. uh, in, in New York City. And uh, it jumped out of the radio because it was the rawest music I'd heard on um, on FM up until that point. It was it was the first like really big guitar-in-your-face uh, music that I'd heard on, in a commercial sense on the radio, but it had the blues bass, so that made it more acceptable mm-hmm. than some of the stuff we were doing. And sold a million copies for Rounder Records. So Rounder Records went from this local kind of archival... The, I always thought when I was growing up, I always thought Rounder Records were the records that you saw in the public library. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the PBS of record labels. And very much so. And so suddenly they got this, they got a million seller, and they, they didn't really know what to do. They, they did not expect it. So one of the first things they did is they had a space in their warehouse over in North Cambridge, right on the Arlington line. 
and they built a studio. And they, as kind of a gift to John Nagy, who had delivered this platinum record, they, they made it his studio. And he built it to his specs, and it's a beautiful, beautiful studio, beautifully designed by a acoustical engineer named Michael Blackmer. And the control room was probably maybe one of the best control rooms I've ever been in. And Nagy, something went sour with the Rounder, the relationship between Rounder and Nagy. And Nagy was supposed to sell the studio back to Rounder, or basically just give it back to Rounder, but he didn't. He turned around and sold it to Joe Harvard, which made Rounder really, really upset. And Rounder took us to court a couple of times to try to, to, try to um, void, coop. Void, void the lease that we were given, saying that it was not part of their original contract with Nagy. So we started off on a, on a, on a really bad foot over there because they thought we were, um, and rightly so, they thought we were punk rock ruffians and slobs. Um, You're bringing a bad element to the name. Uh, once again, that bad element thing. Yeah, don't, don't, don't bad influences. Uh, we eventually became really tight with the rounders, and we, we, by the time... At the end of the studio, everybody was happy. That's Mike. Uh, who's, who owned Rounder? It was the three people. Oh, okay. It was kind of the Rounders, they were mm-hmm. called. And then they, they then they became more commercial when they um, signed and made a huge success with Alison Krauss. Yeah, they, they they kind of went into that Americana space. Yeah, and, they, they, and you know, they, they had good A&R people over there, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, they expanded it, and rightfully so. They, they were a great bunch of people. But So that's how we got the 24-track. And so if we hadn't had that, then we might not have been in the best position, for instance, to do the Throwing Music's debut album. That was the first major label record, but we, we did it at the 24-track studio. We did Bug by Dinosaur Jr. <laughs> there, too. Um, so that, having the two studios really then allowed us a flexibility. We could do Rough and Ready at the old uh, ghetto spot and then do more of the commercial stuff. I mean, once again, commercial in quotes, because mm-hmm. who, knew, who knew what it was really going to be? Well, it, I mean, it, you made it commercial. I mean, it, 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 well, it evolved under your under your uh, auspice. Yeah, you know, but a lot of it had to do with sheer luck, and I'll tell you why. It's because what we, we did that music because we loved it, because we loved the sound of big guitars, and we'd come from a band, and we, we were musicians first and engineers, producers second. And... It never, it's, it's entirely possible that it never ever could have broken through if it hadn't been for Nirvana. Because that, Nirvana changed the world. Nirvana put out an album which is very much a Port Apache style album, although it was super slick mix by Andy Wallace, that gets on the radio and kills the hair bands. Thank you. And uh, when Paul and I were um, in, the, in, in the early 90s, ni- 1990 to be exact, when we were applying, uh, trying to get a producer manager in L.A., uh, where hair band, the hair bands were, were king, um, we got rejected by every single producer manager because they not only did not understand the grungy music that we were doing, and it was grunge, mm-hmm. um, but they, they didn't see it as being commercial at all. So... In the where are they now file. Well, <laughs> a, let's not talk about A&R people. Um... They're wonderful people, but uh, uh, yeah. Well, their music business changes, and uh, sometimes the major labels are the, are the last to know. It seems that way. I mean, yeah. it really. It, 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 I mean, this whole evolution of of you know music moving to the internet. I mean, that, they seem to be the last, absolute last. <laughs> There's a whole book about that. It's called Appetite for Destruction. That basically every it goes through the the 15 reasons how 
the the uh, label industry destroyed itself. It, it, yeah, was number one cocaine. <laughs> that was part of it. The whole idea of be, cocaine being normal, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> being yeah. part of the budget. Yeah, right, right. Or like having a cup of tea, you know. Mm. Uh, so, so when so you continued on with Fort Apache um, through uh, mid late nineties, was that? Uh, Let's see. What was the evolution? Um, yeah, we, you, got, we, got, we got the, um, we expanded to the 24 track in 1988, late part of 88. Uh, we then, we got, the lease was up on the original, uh, well, we, we divided it, uh, the, the, sorry, the rounder was Fort Apache North, and the ghetto studio was Fort Apache South. Uh, the original studio, we lost our lease, and we rented another um, down and dirty studio, even farther into the no man's land that lasted for about a year and then we realized there was no reason to have two studios mm-hmm. and so that was in maybe 1992 although we did have the one memorable record that we did make at the second Fort Apache the second location was the debut album of Uncle Tupelo oh that's fantastic yeah. and that was that, that was done in 10 days uh, eight track so uh, then we were just really cooking throughout the 90s and then uh, we lasted until 2000 Okay, and then, so are you? Uh, is the is the band still together? Or do you you? Uh... Well, let's see. Um, so so Gary then moved. Gary uh, moved the studio up to. He decided he wanted to move to Vermont, and he took the board and most of the equipment, and he moved it up to Vermont. Um, but that's I don't know if he ever really put it together. Um, I know he had the equipment there, but then he it never became a formal studio. Uh, then Paul Coldry then went to um, the Rounders in 2002, and because no one was in that space, mm-hmm. and said, "Well, let me let me um, put a studio in there." And there was some negotiations, and that's what he did. So, but he could not call it Fort Apache because uh, Gary owned the name, so he called it Camp Street Studios, which is the street that it was on. And he ran uh, Camp Street from 2003 until 2010. Okay. And so nobody has a studio anymore, although uh, I have a, a neat little analog uh, studio in my house in Maine, and, and Paul has a, a more of a formal studio in his mixing studio in uh, his house in upstate New York. Um, Gary's in Vermont. Um, Joe lives in Asbury Park, New Jersey. <laughs> um, I'm not actively producing anymore. Uh, when I started working at Berkeley, um, which I was really grateful to be able to do. That was in 2013. Um, I kind of switched over to teaching full-time. And occasionally, I have done albums. Uh, I've done projects in my home studio. I've made, made some albums there. Uh, and I'm kind of I'm making the, the, uh, the move over to more soundtrack work, jingles and uh, soundtrack work, stuff like that. Um, I've, you know, I lived, I lived, literally lived in recording studios uh, from 1985 solid until the turn of the century. Yeah, and by the turn of the century, I was burnt to a crisp. <laughs> it's it's a it's uh, it's a exciting. I, as I sort of started off this conversation talking about how I had sort of fantasized this mythology in my head about what Fort Apache was, it was um, it was brought cr- uh, crumbling down to earth when I wound up hanging out in in recording studios and finding out just how. Sleepy the process is. Oh yeah, I mean it's it, it can be very slow and methodical, but you get used to that. Um, yeah, I mean you might be standing there having the rhythm guitar player play the same uh, sixteen bars like ten times, mm. 
when you mix, for instance, um, you listen, you're listening to that same song like for a whole day, two days, over and over and over again. So it does take a certain mindset to be able to do that. Uh, it would drive most people crazy. It, it, well, I think it does. It has. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it does. And, you know, you also live in a, you also live in a really weird um, netherworld when you're just in the studio. You, it, the, being in studios, you have no contact with the real world whatsoever. It's, I mean, it's, it's uh, purposefully sense... Uh, sensory deprivation? Yeah, sensory yeah. yeah, because you're supposed to be, you know, it's concentrating entirely on the detailed process of creating a record, which is... Uh, and I talk about this at Berkeley in my production classes, making a record is completely contrived uh, uh, process by which in the final result has to sound totally natural. Mm-hmm. So the it's whole like thing, acting. It's very much like acting. It's like a magic trick. It's like abracadabra. And most people think, first of all, they don't know what, what, how, what studios actually do. Most people think, uh, civilians, let's say, think that bands walk into the studio, they set up, they play, and then an hour later they got a net record. I they did. walk out with a record. I pictured, <laughs> I pictured myself hanging out at Fort Apache watching daily concerts, basically. Yeah, right. It's just people playing and singing, and then they're done. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the early days of Fort Apache, I had people call us up uh, and ask whether how many records they could walk out of their session with. Like, do you, do you have a box of, could we get a box of 100? <laughs> they, they had no idea what the story was. Yeah. Uh, I think the other thing that changed my life at that time, too, was uh, uh, my first uh, child was born in 1998, and uh, soon after, my second uh, son. And I was kind of dragged kicking and screaming into the real world, and I was unprepared for it. Oh, that, that uh, you know, uniquely suited to that to that world. Yeah, that's a that's a tough uh, mountain to climb, I would imagine. It was, and it took me a while to get used to it. And and so uh, when uh, when Berkeley came along, and uh, uh, I started teaching in two thousand nine and two thousand ten, uh, mainly because there just weren't that many projects out there uh, for me. I mean, I'd gotten to the point where, uh, well, when I was older, and you know, when when people start saying you're a veteran producer mm-hmm. that can, you can either think of that as good or horrible uh, but music had changed so radically too that uh, you know the whole guitar based drum kind of thing was gone well the, it, you know I saw a quote that you had at one point where you said the the budgets I think it was you that said this that the budgets went from 200,000 to 20,000 to 2,000 yeah or nothing yeah I mean there, there was this weird sea change uh, in the mid aughts where bands thought that you were supposed to work for them for free like somehow you would, they were doing you a favor by uh, by letting you produce their beautiful music, which was bound to be huge, uh, and you should be grateful for that. And I don't know where that attitude came from, but it was certainly abhorrent to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I'd rather do nothing than to work for free. Uh, you know, I can sit on the couch and read a book. Yeah, <laughs> so, perfectly. So, uh, yeah, but then... But then, I don't know, so teaching was a real godsend, and yeah. uh, so I'm really happy to be here now. Well, that's great when we're here at Berkeley, so uh, yeah, that's it's kind of nice. enough. But yeah, <laughs> but it, I mean, it, it's, uh, it's a fascinating place, and, and um, what are you teaching these days? Uh, well, I'm in the music production and engineering department, and I teach uh, the, all the production courses. Okay. I teach the introduction to music production for the whole school. That's a large lecture class. And then there are then four stepwise production classes that go from like beginner to advanced and I take I teach them all and I take the students through the uh, steps of learning how to be a producer um, there are production classes and there are engineering classes but they all work together mm-hmm. it's a very tight knit very well organized program uh, 
But yeah, I, I had the one epiphany I had one day when I was sitting in class uh, reviewing let's say, mixes with a student's project. I said, you know what? My life, my job hasn't changed one bit. All I'm doing is sitting here listening to music. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, we're gonna. I'm gonna end this. Uh, the way we end every episode with the uh, with the brain clearing question of <laughs> what are you listening to? Oh, I'm uh, madly in love with uh, a, a DJ artist named Yeji. Y a e j i. She's uh, Korean, but she lives in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, My brother is a big fan. Oh, she's amazing. Uh, I was doing some research when I was writing a course uh, where where the project is to make a three song EP. So I said, oh, well, let's see what the best EPs from 2017 were. And she was right up there, and I'd never heard of her before. And I, I just I couldn't believe how great it was. Mm. The, the song, I start off, find the song Rain Girl. That's, that's, that's how we are. All right, well, we'll, we'll, we'll fill that in at the end of the... Uh, Actually, that would be great. It's so. got, got the best kick drum sound ever. Excellent. <laughs> well, thank you so much for oh, doing thank this. You. This is a lot of fun. It was Appreciate a lot it. of fun. So uh, thanks so much. Okay. Rain, make it, rain, girl, make it. Sartorian Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>